Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 151, my guest is CEO and co-founder Obi of CoinFloor, recorded while I was in London for Advancing Bitcoin. This podcast is brought to you by Kraken, the place to buy, sell, or trade Bitcoin. Kraken have a high-quality platform, they've got high trading volume and low fees, with no minimum or hidden fees. They offer 24-7, 365 support, so you can easily get help if you need it. Kraken also have Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for Bitcoin trading on the go. There have been some recent updates, allowing you to list your favorites, refine timeframes, and receive vibrating feedback on major actions. Kraken also offer margin and futures trading. Go and sign up at kraken.com or get the Kraken Pro app on Google Play or the Apple App Store. This podcast is also brought to you by Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin financial services company building products and services on the foundation of multi-sig. Unchained offer two of three multi-signature vaults. You can use Trezor or Ledger. It's an easy web interface if you've been concerned about increasing your security and using multi-sig this is a great option for you you can secure it for the long term and unchained can act as the co-signer in that scenario and if you need liquidity in usd you can put up bitcoin and receive a loan collateralized with bitcoin it's stored on chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses i'm really impressed with unchained go and check them out at unchained-capital.com have you backed up your bitcoin seed Go to cyphersafe.io and check out the Cypher Wheel product. If you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet and you've got those 12 or 24 BIP39 seed words, keep them backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. When you get the product, you slide in the tiles for each of the letters of the words and you just do four letters per word because that's enough to recover. Make sure you make use of the padlock tamper evidence seal so that way you know if it's been opened. And make sure you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Orders are going out now. Go and order yours at cyphersafe.io. That's spelled C-Y-P-H-E-R-S-A-F-E.io. So I got to meet Obi at Advancing Bitcoin and we were chatting a little bit about how CoinFloor recently went Bitcoin only. And we also spoke a little bit about proof of reserves and proof of solvency and his thoughts on educating users of the exchange and also supporting grassroots Bitcoin meetups. So here's the interview. Obi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Stefan. So, Obi, you are the CEO of CoinFloor, one of, uh, again, a long-standing Bitcoin exchange. And uh, also, we've, you know, just recently this week, we're, you know, you were a sponsor of Advancing Bitcoin, which we were just at recently. Let's start with you. What was it about Bitcoin that drew you into it? I think, so prior to Bitcoin, I'd had a dalliance with virtual currencies already. I was the, I'm a geek, and I was a CTO for 15 years. And I was the VP of engineering for a company called WeWorld, which you may not remember it, but at the time, there were things like Habbo Hotel, Club Penguin. Okay. These yeah. really popular virtual worlds for teenagers or kids. And WeWorld was one of those. When I started, we had 5 million users, and then we finished up with 30 million. And for 30 million users, you had to create a virtual world, and a necessary part of that was some sort of economy. So we created a virtual currency called, uh, inventively, WePoints, and um, people started using it. 
And within a few months, we became shocked because people were, were working, creating or doing stuff for hours a week, sometimes 30, 40, 50 hours a week. It was a full-time job for them to earn these Wii points, which could only be used within Wii World to buy uh, Justin Bieber t-shirts and um, bits for their Wii house or their Wii room, etc. And we would meet up regularly with the founders of Club Penguin or Haber Hotel and all the others. And all of us had the same experience. We were trying to understand why. And it became clear to us that value wasn't something that related to physical things. Value was something that was a mindset. And if you valued it and other people valued it, it was valuable. And that's why these virtual currencies, even though they were very, very limited and they were controlled and centralized, still had some value. So when a couple of years later, I came across in 2011, Bitcoin, it made perfect sense because this was a virtual currency, but that could be used anywhere by anybody. It wasn't bounded by one particular website. So it was obvious that this was the currency for the internet. There was the money for the internet. Um, and the millennial generation and the generation Z, et cetera, would inherently and instinctively understand this. It's interesting you say that with this whole virtual currency world because what typically would happen in some of these game worlds and so on is someone finds a way to tie value back out into US dollar or yep. A pound or Australian dollar or whatever mm. and so then some in-game item has an AUD equivalent or a pound equivalent and then people try and tie back the value even though it's a game currency was that something you experienced? This would happen all the time um, and these secondary markets would exist um, and in fact um, you would see it the, the interplay between gaming and real world was happening all the time I mean, Mount Gox was originally Magic the Gathering online exchange because it was a gaming card, um, a game, gaming card game called Magic the Gathering and people wanted a way of having a secondary market for that. So we would see on eBay and Gumtree and various other sites people trying to sell their, um, their articles from the Wii world um, and you saw it with others. But we would constantly try to limit it because... Um, because of the law, you know, if, if, it, if it became clear that there was a very large secondary market, um, it would be a challenge for us to say that this was an in-game currency and so on. But it was always an ongoing challenge. And then so let's bring it to Bitcoin and CoinFloor. So can you tell us a little bit about how CoinFloor got started? So, yeah, so in back in it was actually back in 2012, 2013, um, there were various UK exchanges, but they were being hacked they were having various practices which weren't in line with what was should be reasonably expected for um, a customer of an exchange. So one exchange, famously, um, the CTO open sourced the code to the exchange unilaterally, um, but accidentally also open sourced the private keys to the <laughs> cryptocurrency um, stores and... It got hacked, funnily enough. Um, and so these, these are sort of examples of the practices that were going on. Um, and it became clear that in 2013, we should set up our own exchange. But understanding that what we're effectively doing is setting up a crypto bank. And as such, it needed to have the rigor of a bank. So we started with three main concepts, trust, reliability, and security. Um, 
And unlike many others before, we took those really seriously. It seems obvious. Um, and we, from day one, sort of kept those philosophies in mind in everything we've done. What are some of the ways that you think exchanges can build that trust uh, with their customers and with the broader ecosystem, for want of a better word? So there are many ways. Um, one, when we started, it's now less of an issue, but um, as an exchange, you have to first understand the most important is who serves who. We are service providers, and as such, um, the customer is the actual service, service protagonist, um, so service um, patron. And as such, the customer is the one who's in control. A problem that we have nowadays is a lot of exchanges um, have forgotten that. And they think because they have a number of customers, they forget the fact that it's actually the customers who are still in control. And a lot, unfortunately, a lot of the customers misunderstand that as well. I'd like to dwell on that more, but let me go through what that means when you understand that the customer is actually the person who's, who's in charge. One really important thing is to be public. So we, at the time, there were a lot of exchanges where the founders weren't known. Um, we were one of the first exchanges in the UK to be known. People could visit us if they, like you've just visited us today. Um, obviously, by appointment, um, we, we um, sometimes, less frequently now, have people walking in with bags of cash saying, can you provide <laughs> us? And we say, uh, no. Um, can we take your details? And they they say no and disappear generally. But still, we allow people to see us, to be comfortable that we really exist and we're, we're there and we are, we are um, willing to answer questions. Secondarily, it's important to be part of the community. Um, we regularly go to events. We, we sponsored Advancing Bitcoin. Um, and these are grassroots events we sponsor. It's not the big flashy events, but it's the, it's, we like to sponsor the grassroots events. I often go to events, not just in the London, because... Bitcoin is for everybody. Uh, uh, there are some great events up in Manchester and so on that I, I try to go to every year. And the third is to find if there are mechanisms to reduce the amount that people have to trust you, given that you're a centralized exchange. Um, and I still think that for now, centralized exchanges are still an essential part of the, of the, of the journey um, to Bitcoin, to this Bitcoin future that we're moving towards. If there are tools that you can employ to reduce the amount of trust that people have to have in you, you should use those tools. Um, so chief amongst them is something called, and it has many names, but there's proof of solvency, proof of custody, etc. One of the biggest concerns that people have with an exchange is, has the exchange been hacked or are they misusing my money? Gotcha. And I guess historical context for listeners who might be a little bit newer, one of the big concerns in the space is if an exchange has been hacked and then are they going to try to go fractional to try and basically cover up that they've been hacked? And so historically with Mt. Gox, those of you who are a little newer might not be familiar with the story, but essentially that's one of the risk factors. And so those of us in Bitcoin were very concerned with Bitcoin businesses and exchanges being full reserve, right? Having all the Bitcoins that they say they do, right? And so uh, can you tell us a little bit about 
your proof of uh, so it, on your blog it's called the provable solvency report so tell us a little bit about that and it goes under many names um, we're probably going to call it proof of custody um, but we might we're trying to think of simpler ways to get across the point but um, effectively what happens is on a monthly basis we take all of the crypto or bitcoin that we're holding for our customers create a transaction on the on the bitcoin blockchain so we basically send ourselves the money so people can see the amount of um bitcoin that we are holding because it's and it's stored it's it's memorialized and stored on the blockchain but it's possible with bitcoin um using a um, something called a smart contract, because Bitcoin does support smart contracting functionality, to add a piece of extra data to that transaction. The op return. It's, the, it's called the op return. But this is basically a tag with extra data. And that extra data links to a report of the amount of balances that we should be holding for customers. And that report, again, we store online um, and it's timestamped as well. So you can see the amount we stored, each balance we stored for every person. Each balance is encrypted in such a way whereby, um, whereby only the owner of that balance can decrypt their own balance and confirm that it is because we want to maintain their privacy. But what this gives you in combination is two things. One, at a point in time, we're showing how much money we should have and also how much money, uh, how much Bitcoin we should have and how much Bitcoin we actually have. Now, if you're solvent, the amount of Bitcoin you actually have should be more than the amount that you should have. And so that's the first thing that you can see, that if you add up all the lines that are in this report, it should be less than the amount that we were sending on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain at the time. But the second thing you have is that any single customer can separately check their line. So we can be held to account by all of our customers in this, de in this decentralized way. Now, because we don't know who is going to check that line, and they can check it throughout history, so someone could go back five years, six years, and, and nearly six years now, and perform that same check. If anyone finds a line is, doesn't meet, fit what they thought their balance was at that time, they have evidence, they can show it to the world, and show that at some point in time we weren't solvent when we were saying we were. And our, and our trust be gone. Let's talk through a little bit of the process, like what that customer would do if they want to verify. So let's say I'm a customer. I go and I, I look on your blog and I say, okay, here's the CoinFloor Provable Solvency Report. I download some of the information, like I download the report itself. And then I basically, there's certain things here that I could check. So for example, you can check the SHA-256 sum of the overall report, mm. and then I would also check maybe my balance. So let's say I'm holding you know, a small amount on the exchange, maybe like 0.1 Bitcoin, uh, and then I would get a certain identifier and basically I'm matching my identifier versus yep. my balance in that report. So high level, first of all, again, a given customer, uh, most customers have a good idea of their balance and their balances don't, change too frequently. So they'll have a good gut feel um, of what their balance should have been at any given time. Uh, if they're traders, it might change more frequently. Um, they can go on our site 
as is the case for most exchanges, and they can see their current balance, and they can also download their balances and changes in their balance and deposits withdrawals or trades from the beginning of their experience with using CoinFloor to the current time. So they can download that, and that can be put into a spreadsheet, for example, to see. So, But even beyond that, they should have their own gut feel of what their balance should be as well to make sure that there isn't anything weird. So they start with that. Then they see the provable solvency or the proof of custody report. And they will do two things. They will first download the actual report and it will be line. Each line will be a have a balance attached to it. And they will also um, be able to um, see the timestamp, i.e. it's a, a line at the top which basically says when this report was made to the second. They'll then look at the transaction on the blockchain and see that that, that, that transaction was sent with, with linking with the op return, linking to right. linking it to the report. Right, and that will also show the overall balance. So, for example, on your blog, it says, "Okay, uh, as at you know this day or this time, Coinflow holds a total of you know three thousand eight hundred and fifteen you know bitcoins," and then. And I, it, so they will see that balance, and then they click on the link to a blockchain explorer. If they wanted to, because the Bitcoin blockchain is decentralized, they could, if they, if they were, they could be running their own version of the blockchain. If they didn't trust an online explorer and check the balance as well. Um, so they would see that the balance we said matches the balance at that point, matches the balance on the blockchain, uh, which is being verified by, verified by thousands of machines around the world, thousands of nodes around the world. So they have confidence that that was our balance at that time. They can then see it links to this report and the timestamps, so they can have confidence there that we are saying that this is these this is what we believe were the balances for customers at that time. Yeah. And now they now have to verify that we're not lying there or we're not telling the truth. And what they can do is there's a series of instructions we give them, but fundamentally it involves taking information that only we and they and, and the customer shares. Um, that they can get when they log on and they can they can see but it's certain um, private information that is shared between the two of us and they can use that following these instructions to effectively search through the um, report find the line that relates to them and they will be able to be decrypted and they can that'll be the only line that will be able to be decrypted the line that relates to them therefore therefore will know that that's the line that they, the balance related to that line is the one that should be their balance. They will look at the balance, check the balance that they, they believe that they should have had and from their reports they should have had, and they should match. If they don't match, then there's a problem, and it should match to the, to the Satoshi. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, one of the important factors is you don't know who could check you. So it could be any of your, you know, your thousands and thousands of customers, any one of them could check it. And so that at any time as well, they could. If someone was a customer for for five years, today they could decide to check their their report from five years ago because they, we download all the balances throughout time. You can see what the balance should have been on that date, and they they could have not bothered for five years, and now they checked and realized actually when you started you weren't solvent, right. and and so we are we have to, so knowing that this is not just something that we check and never have to forget again, um, um then never have to think about again that forces us forevermore, our reputation becomes more and more important over time. So, so we have to think about way up in terms of all the way through for perpetuity, this is an important thing for us and we need to maintain it. 
that's an impressive feature. I do want to call out a couple things. So um, there, and I'm sure you know we can talk about those as well. That um, this relates to the bitcoins with the exchange, and now some of the like some of the recent commentary, and I think what we've seen over the years is kind of occasional flare-ups in interest in this idea of proof of solvency, proof of reserves, proof of custody, depending on different terminology. Uh, one concept I've heard is this idea of, well, you can sort of verify the reserves, like the Bitcoin's held, but that company or Bitcoin exchange might have other liabilities that are you know unrelated. And so I guess this is one piece of the puzzle, right? And this is an important part of the puzzle. But I've heard of other approaches where maybe an auditor, like a traditional auditor, would come in and just spot check or test that, okay, the liabilities are what they say they are. So let's say, for example, you know, 3,800 Bitcoins or so are held, you know, by CoinFloor, but also what are the liabilities and have they, you know, make sure they haven't been promised elsewhere as well. Mm. Yeah, and, and um, there are more things that can be done. Um, however, the, there are various challenges with that. One, auditors have historically been uncomfortable with auditing ex exchanges, cryptocurrency exchanges. That is starting to change now. Um, so, for example, we had a, a, a subsidiary in Gibraltar, um, and it was after multiple conversations between the Gibraltar authorities, the regulatory authorities, and the auditors that they agreed to audit um, our, our Gibraltar subsidiary. So, because it was possible to be done there, we, we did it there. However, um, that being said, we have to remember um, the environment that was in place when Bitcoin came into being. Um, this was the um, credit um, crash of around 2007-2008. Um, and a big part of the problem there was that people relied on auditors to, um, uh, who were still trusted third parties to verify um, the, um, the books of some of the banks at the time. And it turned out that because of various incentives, these were large, um, you know, various incentives, it turned out that they hadn't actually um, done their job properly. So ultimately, um, if you want to be able to verify something fully, you want to have mechanisms to verify it yourself. Separately, the other bigger point is the something not being perfect is not a reason to do nothing at all. Sure, absolutely. And that's the probably the most important thing. As um, um, people's balances um, and as exchanges' balances get bigger and bigger and bigger, it's more and more important to prove that they're not, they haven't been hacked, to prove that they aren't trading their customers' money um, um, on other exchanges. So behaving like quasi-traditional banks effectively without the necessary regulatory approvals and oversight. And there's less and less an excuse for them not to do this. Um, and the discipline of doing this every month reminds us on a monthly basis why we're here, reminds us that we are serving our customers. We are service providers, the clues in the name. We provide the service um, and it keeps us humble. And that's also an incredibly important thing. And then finally, because we are doing these transactions on the blockchain and, and it's large amounts, it becomes harder and harder for, um, I, we would imagine, because we don't do it, but we would imagine if you were trying to do something like moving capital in and out, for example, it would become, it will leave bigger, a bigger and bigger footprint on the blockchain. 
So it would, it would, if you were trying to do it, so you would be spending most of your month figuring out how to um, not make that apparent on the blockchain as opposed to running your business. So it would keep you honest as well. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's a good point as well because uh, that is another theoretical kind of challenge with some of these things. When you read some of these papers, I think one of the well-known ones is this one called Provisions. I think it's from 2015, which I'm sure you've probably seen. Uh, but uh, even in that paper, they list out some potential... Uh, pitfalls here so this concept of control versus ownership or collusion between exchanges right if exchanges were to try and say oh hey like we'll try and coordinate to try and help each other pass the the audit and so on but i think the fact that each customer has their own individual balance helps there because it would be much harder to try and fake that kind of number it would be it will be i mean it's one of these things. It's it's possible, but the incentives, the game theory of it are you're you're talking about colluding with your competitors who could shop you to the authorities and your customers and cause you to and and therefore get rid of a competitor and take the market share. So um, it, it's and if only one of them is honest they can basically shop everybody else and take the right. entire market yeah. share. So, yes, they're theoretically possible, but uh, um, oh, we're, we're very comfortable um, sure. that, uh, that this, this um, um, keeps us honest and, and um, keeps us focused on our customers um, um, philosophically and mentally and morally. And, and we're, we're still sort of surprised that not more exchanges are doing it. At the beginning, when we, when we, this was all in the sort of shadow of the Mt. Gox uh, affair, most exchanges at the time, um, in fact, I think there was a joint um, statement made by Coin, um, by a number of exchanges, I, I probably wouldn't want to name them, but, but um, a number of major exchanges, and uh, a couple of them tried a few times, um, I think more recently, one of them has started again, I think. Um, but the majority of them did not um, proceed with that that promise. And you have to ask yourself at some point, why? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because people have shifted that, if, if you will, the appetite for proof of reserves or some form of proof has waxed and waned right so there are times where people are like really yeah we want this we want this now and then other times where it seems like people don't really care right and so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a weird thing for um it must be a weird thing for you to sort of have been around for a few years and see that um that desire kind of come and go and i, I think that's because of education or miseducation really when new people enter the market they have to go through a process and that process is the same for everybody and um, I'm not sure it can be accelerated. And it's only when you get into the space for a while, you realize that, okay, or you see an exchange being hacked. And that tends to be a, a, a point where people start thinking, of what can we do about these things? Um, or, for example, we enter a bear market and you see a, a significant jump up in exchanges being hacked. But the question is, were they hacked or were they trading on other people's exchanges? Um, trying to make an extra uh, amount of profit, traded badly in a, in a bear market and then claimed they were hacked. You know, we, again, the, you can never know uh, with proof of solvency that could, that could help. Um, so it's, it's one of these things, but as the balances that are being stored on exchanges um, continue to increase in value, um, 
I believe that you're going to see calls for this um, increase. And another reason you're going to see calls for increases is because we're going to, uh, organizations like us are going to make more and more of a stink about it because historically we're an exchange focused on institutional and sophisticated investors and traders. Um, but the majority of the market in terms of, of feet on the ground are consumers. Um, and we were expecting over the last few years to see this become more common in the space and it hasn't. And uh, basically we've come to the view that enough is enough. We have to sort of get into that space and educate people as to why it's important. I think the sophisticated uh, market understands this and there's no reason why the consumer market um, can't be made to understand why this is an important factor when deciding on an exchange. Yeah, that, those are good points. I think... From my perspective, I've just always been trying to push people towards self-custody, right? So I've always been saying, hey, and as you know, as like an immortal rule in this space, not your keys, not your coins. That's always the way. A hundred percent agreed. I mean, um, so again, um, if I, for my mind, again, I think sometimes people try to make it overcomplicate it and uh, to use an Americanism, don't get it twisted. Um, we are part of a journey. This, the journey is a very simple journey. And the, and the first thing is you have to educate customers correctly because um, the majority of customers don't want volatility, don't want to speculate, uh, don't want to trade. They just want to, to have a position in this, um, in, in a safe and a, a position in the crypto space, as safe and simple way as possible. Um, so you have to educate them. You have to give them very simple tools to, to buy in a, in a very um, safe way. Um, and as, as they get educated at a certain point, they will be comfortable with custodying themselves. And at that point, if that's what they're comfortable with, they should custody themselves. Um, but also being realistic, it's important to understand that you need training wheels before you can go off and start doing wheelies on your bike, you know? And no matter how skilled you are in one skill, um, it doesn't necessarily translate to another. If you're an experienced um, um, surgeon, doesn't mean that you're going to be an expert on Bitcoin. And day one, the training wheels are working with an exchange, understanding the basics of Bitcoin. And then when you're comfortable with that, then understanding self-custody. But getting someone to understand self-custody right at the beginning can be very frightening to someone when they start. But ultimately, I understand that majority of people should be, at some point, be comfortable enough custodying themselves the other cool thing uh that i've noticed recently with CoinFloor is there was recently the bitcoin only announcement so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so um we were obviously we started back in 2013 so we were bitcoin only from the beginning and we were around and quite significantly involved with the um whole Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash event um, a number of years ago when we had the, the first major fork of, um, of Bitcoin. And at that point, because a number of our customers effectively were cussing with us, we decided to list Bitcoin cash. Um, uh, around that time, Ethereum was starting to become more popular um, and we were devising our own sort of criteria for deciding whether to list a currency or, or not. Um, and it came from this sort of nebulous sort of feeling to we started to sort of um, 
get it to be more concrete as to what were the actual aspects of a cryptocurrency. Because again, multiple cryptocurrencies were just starting to boom at that point. Um, but after about, we were probably one of the last exchanges to list Ethereum because we weren't comfortable. It, it re reached our, our sort of very objective criteria. Um, but in the beginning of 2019, I think it was the 5th of, of January 2019, we decided to list um, Ethereum as well. Because um, we felt it just crept up to the level where it 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 fits the criteria to be able to be listed. And to be clear, Bitcoin also is also just above that level of the criteria because it's it's a very high bar. Because objectively, it should be a high bar. This is a high risk space, so you should have a high bar. Um, and the criteria um, um, are simple. One is that a currency should be value driven. So Ethereum sort of um, it's. Uh, um, excluded itself for many for a number of years because um, there was a big mantra that the ethereum wasn't about its value it was actually more about um, decentralized computing and then in late 2018 there was this sort of move to ethereum if is money type move and it's okay fine you've now sort of got it that it needs to be value driven because guess what we're in exchange so we we're trying to um, translate from one valuable um, asset to another. And if you don't believe it's valuable, shouldn't do that. The second one is was community support. Ethereum has strong community support. The third was um, um, regulatory clarity because we're a fiat to crypto exchange. And um, as such, we have to, we knew, and now actually regulation has come in. It's an absolute requirement have to sort of pay heed to what regulators are going to be comfortable with. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to service our, um, service our customers. And finally is technical maturity. And that's the maturity of the teams working on the system, the maturity of the technology itself, and the maturity of the people who are underpinning supporting it, miners, stakers, whoever it may be. Now, um, halfway through last year, in 2019, um, the Ethereum... Um, developers or some of the main Ethereum developers um, um, basically all came out saying that Ethereum one wasn't going to scale. It wasn't wasn't good enough. Um, some claimed that they knew this all along, um, and the solution was Ethereum two. Now Ethereum two is not a, a soft fork or hard fork of Ethereum. It is it's a completely new blockchain. Um, so it is a new currency. Now, it could be renamed to Ethereum and people could transfer through airdrops or whatever mechanisms um, value from one to the other, but it's a different um, cryptocurrency, a different technology. And it, it isn't even out yet. And the estimates are that it's going to take between some several months to a few years to fully um, transition over to it. And then there's a number of unknown technologies in that. But at this point in time, we cannot list Ethereum 2 because it doesn't exist to list. Um, however, if the um, developers, the core developers of Ethereum say um, explicitly that Ethereum 1 is not good enough and if you replace Ethereum 2, then we, as an exchange, cannot in all consciousness, um, in all conscience, um, 
look ourselves in the mirror and say that Ethereum is acceptable to offer to our customers because it's just been because we've just been told that it's not good enough. And so it became clear at that point that we needed to delist Ethereum. Now, if Ethereum 2 comes out and it launches and all of the new technology and um, improvements that it has in place make sense and work and and it's been running for a year or two reliably so we have because because it needs to be for no, to know it's working we have to see it running for a while then we'll consider listing it again um but just by their own timelines that's a good few years away right so you, i guess your stance right now is you're bitcoin only but you won't necessarily be bitcoin only in a few years time if if the right scenario plays yeah, out. yeah i mean correct we wouldn't be if the right scenario plays out we wouldn't be we're, we're being very objective in terms of our, our criteria however um when you take those criteria objectively um bitcoin just about meets those criteria it has very strong community support. It is regulatory um, clarity is clear. Um, value driven, it definitely is. But the hardest one, one of the hardest ones to achieve, the technical maturity, it's it's mature enough. But there's still, and we were at advancing Bitcoin and um, conference, for example, just just last week. It's still there's still a lot to do to continue to improve. For example, areas around fungibility and so on. Um, I think the solution to scalability uh, conceptually makes a lot of sense to me as being a technologist working in layers. That's how you scale almost every t other technology system, uh, not just in the, the digital world, but in the physical world as well. You build infrastructure and then piping and then you build the bricks and then finally you start decorating the, the walls. You don't start off with decorating the paint. You, know, um, you work in layers. So conceptually it makes sense, but there's still a lot of work to be done there. But I think that it's good enough for now to list. And as long as that mindset is maintained, it'd still be good enough to list. If it, if it wasn't good enough to list, then we have to shut up shop. All right, like and then you wouldn't have any left. business, right? Because, because there will be nothing in all consciousness that we could list. Now, um, Ethereum seemed to have just met the standard in the beginning of January. With the decision um, uh, of, of mid of last year, it's now nowhere near the standard because it's excluded itself. And everything else at this point in time, if we we're being objective, is nowhere near. So although in theory, um, and I think anybody, unless I'm, the, I'm just a religious fanatic, I should always be open to other ideas. In theory, I could list something else. In practice, no, nothing is anywhere, anywhere near being good enough at this point in time. Um, and, and you just look at those objective criteria, you will know that's the case. And I'm sure all other exchanges, I would like to see a set of objective criteria, which is taken from the viewpoint of their customers, which don't lead to that, doesn't lead to that same conclusion. I can see that it's a challenging space because while I am, you know, I'm Bitcoin only, I don't, I've never like bothered with any of the, of the shit coins. I think there is a, it, it, I, I appreciate, you know, if you're running a business in the space, you have to have revenue and how do you survive in a bear market? I can understand where there were exchanges that had to kind of go and do this stuff. Uh, but for me, I think the dividing line would really have been where there was kind of a, you know, deceptive behavior. Like I think probably an egregious example is something like Coinbase where they, you know, they, they like ninja launch bcash and then and then there was all this like drama around not being able to sell bcash and it was just you know to me it just it was like okay fine i get that 
you know, fine for your business. You have to like have these shit coins that people want to go gamble on, but don't like sell people like false promises and lies about it or like shill them, you know, to all your, you know, the retail people who don't necessarily understand what they're buying, right? They just think, oh, I missed the boat on Bitcoin. Now I want to buy this shit coin, right? So, um, yeah, I won't speak about a specific company or other, but I think in general, when you look at the level of adoption, support, etc., Bitcoin is is ridiculously far ahead of everything else. So one thing I find egregious is when on someone's homepage, you have almost equal billing to Bitcoin to a coin which is doing a hundred, a thousandth of the volume, has has a tiny fraction of the support, and it's sort of they're displayed with equal measure. Um, I think that's very disingenuous and incredibly confusing to customers. Um, one common concern for people in the space is they will explain Bitcoin why it's really um, disruptive. They may have a view of even Ethereum, maybe. Um, although, as I say, I think it doesn't meet the meet the the, the Bitcoin standard. However. They then go to a um, an exchange after uh, their their friend then goes to an exchange and comes back the following day and they said, well, did you how did it go? Because it was really great. Thanks for the advice, um, but I didn't buy that Bitcoin stuff. I bought this other thing that looks like Bitcoin, maybe a similar name, or I bought this other coin because it was only three p or ten p and so on. Um, and it was and the reason why was because they went to a site and that site effectively um uh, i was told by a friend of mine um a ux expert called celine jin who's a works for blockchain. Uh, blockchain about dark patterns and and they employed these dark patterns which are basically um ways of misdirecting people towards something else um then what they need they should be um going towards so it's basically underhanded techniques in terms of for example visual prioritization or you click on one button, they mention you're coming in for this reason, maybe Bitcoin, for example. So maybe a site set up to say that we all love Bitcoin, but when you actually go into it, it's actually a site educating people about multiple cryptocurrencies. Uh, um, some A name that might come to mind is like nakamoto.com, for example. Um, these are dark patterns and, and they are, and, uh, and, um, and we don't like that. So one of the things that we're going to be um, uh, we uh, we are launching is what we're called no BS education because we want to basically be very straight talking. We want to basically be very open to customers and tell them how things work. And if you tell people the truth of how things work, it's actually incredibly simple. Um, and if it sounds complicated, that's where you have to start worrying. One other point I wanted to touch on and... So again, as I mentioned, I'm Bitcoin only. I, I don't, you know, but I, I have heard an argument where it's sort of like, oh, you shouldn't list or delist things based on like popularity. It should be done on technical, you know, merit. And so from that argument that like theoretically some exchanges should even list, you know, like BSV or whatever, and that, you know, you should like let the market, you know, sort of decide. And there one argument in favor, again, I'm kind of steel manning here because I don't necessarily agree with this, but the the view might be something like, oh, hey, well, look, if a lot of exchanges delist BSV, then it might be actually easier for it to get pumped up because now nobody can short it and nobody can easily sell it because there's less exchanges that you can even do that on. But the caveat, though, would be it's on very low volume. Yeah. What do you, what's your view there on that idea of 
technical reasons for delisting. So I think I, I put that into a similar camp. There's technical reasons and also you should give choice. There's, there's a choice argument as well. But uh, let's take the technical reasons. One, we, it's, it's actually you, objective criteria. As I say, we have four objective criteria. If they don't sound sensible for a fiat to crypto exchange, I'd like to. I'd love to have the debate as to why they don't sound sensible, um, and they're very simple. It should be technically mature. It should actually be value driven. I.e., it should be something where the founders believe its value is important. Um, it should have strong community support because um, you because the community underpins the currency, and finally, it sh- finally, it should have regulatory clarity. Um, so there shouldn't be some question marks. Was this an ICO? Was this a, an unregistered equity or something like that? These things you don't want to offer to your customers. If you take those four into account, nothing meets the Bitcoin standard. And Bitcoin just about gets there and nothing else is anywhere near close. So by that argument, you shouldn't list anything else. Um, then there's the, yes, but you know, you're cheating. Um, you should just give free choice and so on. If you had a child... And um, would you just give them a free choice of your, there's there's your um, garage and there's all these like chainsaws and so on. Just go play. It's free choice or go wherever you want. Any person, stranger comes up to you and walk off with anybody. And it's, it's just ridiculous on its face, that argument. Now, um, if you once they you've sort of had a chance to sort of give them their training wheels, educate them to a certain level so they understand the risks and so on by all means give them they can then decide to do what they want to do experiment with um, a new altcoin um, for whatever reason they want to experiment understanding that it is an experiment and highly likely to fail like most experiments um, that's completely fine but just to sort of offer them all this choice with no context when they're just enter- starting their Bitcoin journey is is just plainly irresponsible and you would never do it in any other environment. I mean, I couldn't swim until six months ago and um, I started to learn to swim for, for reasons. Um, and now I can, I regularly every weekend swim one mile um, using the breaststroke and I'm pretty good actually. Um, but just last weekend, I tried to switch over to the front court and I was still back to being like, floundering beginner because skills don't translate and just because people are incredibly experienced they could be captain of industry when it switches to something like cryptocurrencies which are completely new they're back to being a child and whether they realize it or whether you realize it or not that is the reality and you have to therefore take that have that mindset and um, educate them until they're ready to make these more complex and nuanced decisions yeah, great, great perspective. Uh, what's and I think it flows on nicely into this idea of what's needed for mass market. What does the mass market need in terms of you know Bitcoin services? So uh, I actually tweeted about this the other day, but um, the first thing we need is patience. I mean, sometimes in the Bitcoin space we call it uh, um, a low time preference, um, and that's the most important thing we need. Um, this story has been played out throughout any new major disruptive technology. Um, going back to the automobile, but more um, relevant, more recently, the computer, the, the, micro, the microcomputer, the internet, and now cryptocurrency. Step one 
is you have to educate someone about um, a cryptocurrency, about Bitcoin, about uh, to the point where they understand its value and therefore they want to own it and they own it. Um, that's the most important step. Once you've figured out that step one, then you go into step two, which is get as many people to get past step one to the point where you hit critical mass. Now, what I don't know is when is critical mass. It could be at 10% of people in a given jurisdiction or country or, or the world. It could be 20, it could be 50. But there'll be some point. Uh, and it will be a point where um, if you're a merchant or if you're someone who's, if you look at your friends, some significant percentage of them will own Bitcoin and want to own more of it. It was similar with mobile phones. Uh, you got to a point where it wasn't this sort of weird sort of exception. A, a number of your friends started having it, and that's when you hit critical mass. Um, and step three, at critical mass, you now have a circular economy. Because if I want to buy something with Bitcoin, I don't need to transfer my fiat into Bitcoin because I already have Bitcoin. And then the merchant doesn't need to convert their Bitcoin back to fiat because they always want to keep a percentage of their holdings in Bitcoin and increase that percentage. So they're, and then at that point, if you don't need to have the friction of converting fiat to Bitcoin or Bitcoin to fiat, then Bitcoin becomes an incredibly powerful mechanism for transfer. But if you need to have that friction to convert, whether it's, even if it's in a simplified way, linking your bank account or so on, um, you're always going to be um, saddled by this extra set of inconvenience. So trying to get to the point where it's used as this global payment system now before critical mass is premature. So therefore, once you understand that, the fundamental technology will handle the being used as a payment system with um, second layers like Lightning Network on top of it, of course. All we need to do is make sure we get people through step one. So we need to get as many people understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin and owning Bitcoin and understanding that this is a form of effectively digital prime real estate. I love that framing because it's uh, it's very difficult in today's world because people might say, oh, hey, I own this property. But then really, do you? Because, you know, you pay property tax on it, the regulations on it. There's all these other claims, if you will. Whereas we think of Bitcoin as a low deal money, right? It's It's a title on which there is no higher claim. You are the true owner as long as you hold the keys. Yeah, it's a it's a digital, uh, I know it's a techie term, but it's digital bearer asset. And you, it's, it's okay, so people argue with um, um, real estate, you also have the ability for it to actually to provide you security and um, a roof over your head. But what's happened over the last X hundred years plus I, uh, has been that we've sort of conflated two purposes in one asset. Um, and normally, it's especially from an engineering background, engineer, engineering discipline, you try to separate concerns. So you have one thing to do one job, and you don't try to overload it by doing two different things. So, so property should be a roof over your head, protection from the elements, etc. Um, but you, ideally, you want to use some other asset that's optimized for being a store of value. Um, and does that job perfectly um, better than anything else? Um, historically, with gold, that our money was our store of assets. 
Um, but then the movement to fiat has meant that we've now moved to predominantly the, the currency of the day is inflationary in nature. It loses value. So you're incentivized to spend it, not to hold it because it loses its value. So we have to find other um, instead of the obvious thing, the money, the most liquid assets in, in, in any given domain or, or jurisdiction being your store of value, it has to be something else. And it, and it had to be stocks, shares, real estate. And that leads to inevitably those prices being pumped up. So only a tiny fraction of the value of your real estate is actually the usage value. And the majority is the money value. Um, with Bitcoin, we are able to make effectively the best of, of fiat currency, because they are all digital nowadays in nature, but combine that with the digital bearer asset properties that we had with gold, and therefore offering a better money, a money for the internet. One other topic I was keen to discuss with you is around privacy and regulatory clarity, right? So I think this is something that we're starting to see a little bit more of and we're starting to see a little bit of a focus on this. We have seen some exchanges who were maybe not comfortable listing you know, Monero or Zcash or things like that. Uh, we are starting to see advancement in technology around coin joining and Bitcoin. What's your view there? Do you, do you see it like current regulators and uh, political authorities around the world are what's their perception of bitcoin and privacy um so i think um and privacy and um and fungibility and so on i think they understand the um the need for fungibility in a currency um uh, no one wants to on their watch have a scenario where someone goes off and buys a, uh, this mythical cup of coffee and then um, gets mugged down the road because the, the relatives of the merchant can figure out that they have, you know, 500 Bitcoin or whatever. Um, that's not a great outcome. And that's the risk with a lack of fungibility. So that's understood at one point. Um, but they also have their concerns around um, uh, avoiding um, uh, money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. However big those are in reality, that is that is the stated um, concern of theirs. And so there is a, a worry that these things are in conflict with each other. Um, I'm not sure they always are in conflict with each other, but um, again, like with everything else, it requires education, um, but not just education of of our customers and the consumers, but education of regulators. So for the last six years, pretty much, um, we've had conversations with um, regulators, with with um, the um, um, authorities in terms of police, um, government, etc., in the UK and abroad, to just educate them as to the state of cryptocurrency, the reality of of its level of fungibility at this point in time. Um, but as um, Bitcoin becomes more fungible, because uh, that that is the stated objective, um, it will be an interesting to see how um, that interplays with regulators. At this point in time, um, Bitcoin is definitely considered a, a currency which can be traded and is and has got a tick by regulators, at least in the UK and Europe. Um, I. 
I, I think it's going to be a very interesting space, but my gut feel is that as an exchange, we have a, a number of uh, mechanisms to um, not play the ball, but play the man effectively, um, uh, or the woman, um, in that we can look at the, the source of funds, the destination of funds on the fiat side of things. Um, so even without the ability to uh, monitor transactions on the blockchain, if that becomes more and more difficult over time, you will still be able to see patterns of behavior which seem um, uncomfortable, et cetera, and, and be able to sort of analyze more um, in more detail if you need to. Gotcha. Yeah, and I guess just context for the listeners, there's so again as much as we all dislike this regulation if you <laughs> want to run a legal compliant business there's all this aml and money laundering laws and so on and some of these laws will require uh, a business to do things like you know screening of a name or do things like checking against certain money laundering typologies or certain kinds of behaviors and so on and so that's that's where some of the, that is obviously as much as i as i hate AML and KYC, I accept that, you know, it exists and, you know, people have to yeah. run a business and have to stay out of jail if we want this thing to work, right? So that's one thing. I was also keen to discuss, you mentioned earlier around grassroots and meetups, right? So obviously we can talk about advancing Bitcoin and how this thing grows and develops further. I, I had a great experience at advancing Bitcoin. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that uh, conference and uh, your, your involvement? Yeah, and uh, I think um, we we need to do more. Um, there are a lot of big, flashy events um, uh, which have a lot of funding from people who have raised money on various ICOs and so on. But if I look at the history of of crypto and Bitcoin in at least in the UK, um, there are a number of events which. Um, have been set up by people who just believe in in the technology and its potential, who actually are not in it just to make money, but they're in it to change the world. They they see Bitcoin as as a fundamental technology that can potentially change or reduce the gap between the privileged and the and and the underprivileged and the overlooked. Um, as an incredibly transformational technology, and they are using their spare time and their own money to progress progress matters. And they often find that they get no interest from large organizations to fund because it doesn't meet their strategic objectives, because their strategic objectives are purely monetary. Um, on our side, um, examples of these are, of course, advancing Bitcoin, um, Great team, Leon working hard to to bring an amazing group of people together. But there are also things like CoinScrum, which is the longest, I believe, the longest running meetup, crypto meetup in the world. Um, and they've had some very seminal meetups, including, you know, the the fateful meetup where Mike Hearn um, suggested that uh, we need a benevolent dictator. That was at a CoinScrum event and so on. And then there are ones up um, um, Co um, CoinFest in Manchester and so on. And many other of these sort of um, grassroots um, meetups. Um, we, um, I patronize them, I go to those. I, I, I know the um, organizers and I think they're amazing events. I think we and other exchanges to do more to support these as well. Because Bitcoin 
is a grassroots phenomena. It's, you know, it's various and numerous, strength in numbers. And numbers means not just a small number of very large um, whales, which are obviously an important part of it, but also every guy on the street, every girl on the street, every person who's just there believing and spreading the message. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic. I, I'm a big believer in trying to build that local community and have local Bitcoin meetups. And I hope to see that develop further in the coming years that people can have a place to go and learn about Bitcoin and, and to have, I think, differing levels as well, right? One that's more of like a general one and perhaps one that's a little bit more techie, developer-focused, and I can actually learn more mm. about the actual technicals. So, for example, uh, Michael Ferguson runs London Bitcoin Devs here, and that's also a great mm, meetup. Yeah. So yeah, look, I think that's about um, that's about a good spot to end it. Did you want to just close out with any uh, closing thoughts and obviously let the listeners know where they can find you and CoinFloor? Yeah, well, first of all, where they can find us, it's very easy. It's um, coinfloor.co.uk. Um, but the closing thoughts is that you know, 2020 is going to be an incredibly exciting time. We're starting a new decade. Um, Bitcoin in this decade is going to go for a lot of transformations um one of the biggest i think this year is i think there's going to be a mindset mind shift um set shift and uh, that is that although people will still talk about um other altcoins and so on i think it's gonna mentally people are going to realize that bitcoin is way ahead of everybody else and um although the game isn't over um, from a time point of view, from a mental point of view, it would be. So it's like one of those points in the match where you could still be at two all and you've still got 30 minutes left to play the, the game of soccer or football. Um, but everybody knows that this team has the momentum and they're going to win. And that's, I think, at the end of 2020 where we're going to be. The, the momentum is with Bitcoin. The architectural approach they're taking makes sense. Um, and so at least for the foreseeable future, I, I, I'm incredibly excited. And CoinFloor and, and I hope other exchanges um, will do what it takes to give clear, no-nonsense, no-BS education to um, all of the new people entering the market. Because this, yes, we need to make money, and and that's that's a, you know I'm a Nigerian by background, so I you know it's in my blood to make money, but more importantly, we are blessed with the ability to be part of a transformative phase in in terms of technology and and um, mankind's relationship to money, and so. Given that opportunity and given that ability, um, we should take advantage of it and we should not just abuse it. Um, and we should just do everything possible to make it happen in, in, the, in the most efficient manner possible. Fantastic. Look, that was a great uh, way to summarize it. Thanks for joining me, Obi. Thank you. Stefan. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Just a shout out for my Patreon supporters. Thanks, guys, for supporting the show. Those of you who enjoy the show and want to support me, go to patreon.com slash Levera. You can sign up there, and if you're a paying supporter, you get the episodes early and ad-free, and there's also a private Keybase chat group for the supporters where you can get some insider info on upcoming episodes. So thanks, guys. Find the show notes and transcript at stefanlevera.com slash 151 for this episode. 
and I'll see you in the Citadels.